the Irish unification is a separate argument. And there, the, the catalyst has been Brexit and the UK living and all the problems of having a common land border, nowadays quite close relations between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, but that, again, is, a, is, a, is really uninfluenced in any way by the change of monarch. It's much more by the dynamics of Brexit. Soon, there will only be five kings left. The King of Spades, the King of Clubs, the King of Hearts, the King of Diamonds, and the King of England. King Farouk of Egypt was often his prediction, but the permanency of the British monarchy has recently fallen into question. The threat of independence from Britain's constituent kingdoms, accelerated by Brexit, means that this could well be the last King of Britain that we see. Across the seas, Commonwealth members are expected to hold referenda on removing the British monarch as their head of state, something that many had only retained out of respect for the longevity of the late Elizabeth II. This is the challenge the latest person to sit on the Stone of Schoon faces. Charles III has waited a long time to be king, but his reign could mark the end of one of Britain's most enduring institutions. Monarchy is but one of many constitutional institutions in the United Kingdom, and this week we also looked at the history of Parliament and its struggles with the Crown over the centuries, as well as the constitutional legacy of one of the seminal figures in British history, Oliver Cromwell. To explore this vast topic, we sat down with Sir Peter Riddell, a former journalist with the Financial Times and the Times of London. He is an honorary professor of history at University College London, where he works with the school's constitution unit. We also covered recent constitutional crises stemming from the premiership of Boris Johnson, and whether these exposed or validated the role of a monarch. Finally, our patrons will be able to hear an extended conversation on various constitutional reforms that have been floated in recent years, including by the commission led by Prime Minister Gordon Brown. As always, please rate and review Uncommon Decency on Apple Podcasts, and send us your comments or questions either on Twitter at UndecencyPod or by email at UndecencyPod at gmail.com. Finally, please consider supporting the show through our Patreon, where you'll be able to gain access to extended conversations with all of our guests. For now, though, we hope you enjoyed this episode. This week, we are joined by Peter Riddell to talk about the British Constitution, the British monarchy, and of course, the coronation uh, that occurred last weekend at the time of recording, but probably two weeks at the time of publication. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure. Unlike other countries, the United Kingdom does not have a codified constitution in the vein of the United States. So when we speak about a British constitution, how should we think about it in terms of structure and governance? Um, well, that could, that could take the whole discussion, so I'll try and keep it brief. Your, your introductory question was absolutely right. It's not codified. People sometimes talk about a written or unwritten one. There's plenty written down, and indeed in statute law, about the British constitution uh, going back several centuries. Um, every year or, or, or two, uh, an act of parliament is passed which effectively um, changes the constitution in some way, um, whether it's about devolving powers from Westminster to the um, devolved administrations in Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, or it's about the electoral system. All these are constitutional acts. What we don't have is one which pulls it all together. And also, in crucially, one which gives a Supreme Court, and we have a Supreme Court, the power to strike down 
act of parliament has been contrary to our constitution. We're in a middle position. Uh, that's not to say it hasn't changed in the last 20, 30 years. It's changed significantly. We're much more codified than we were. Um, the courts have greater powers, for example, in relation to, the, to human rights and other issues. Um, we also have a, a pretty entrenched structure of devolution um, to uh, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. So the constitution is evolving, but it's certainly different from many other countries in not being formally um, um, uh, pulled together and giving the courts the power to override acts of parliament. They can't do that. All they can do is a, a, a rule in relation to interpretations of acts of parliament. Yes, and Peter, um, just looking at some of the uh, uh, since you know, looking at some of the documents that have gone into informing uh, Britain's constitutional tradition, do you think there's a central document that informs it more than others, Magna Carta or the the Reform Act? Uh, but no, I, Magna Carta, I wouldn't. Everyone quotes Magna Carta, which, of course, was a, a deal between the barons um, and um, the King John, which was um, negated within two or three years. And then there were different versions. I mean, people refer back to it, and it's got uh, grand-sounding things in it. But it's also um, uh, some things particularly to, to the medieval period, after what was talking um, nine centuries ago. Um I think you 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 can point to uh, certainly the reform acts which are to do with who votes and who doesn't vote. You could point to um, something which was um, particularly in people's mind during the coronation, which was the acts in 1688 and 1689 when uh, James II was expelled because uh, essentially he wanted to impose. Roman Catholicism on Britain, and um, uh, William and Mary became joint sovereigns. That the acts passed then were in a sense establishing um, the ambiguity of Britain of uh, the monarch and parliament, and establishing parliamentary supremacy. And since then, there have been various acts, for example, limiting the powers of the House of Lords and the balance of the House of Commons. So there have been a series of acts. One um, which, uh, for many years, people regarded as very significant in limiting sovereignty and changing the constitution was the entry into what was then the European Community um, in 1972-73. Now, that, of course, was, was repealed. We had a referendum in 2016 where um, voters voted by a, a narrow but clear margin um, to leave the European Union, and that came into effect two or three years ago. Now, those we regard as fundamental acts, but they can be changed. The other things I'd point to was certainly the devolution legislation and the human rights legislation, which was all came in um, um, in the early years of the Blair government um, in 1997 to 2000. When I sort of look at the, the history of England and later Britain, a continuous thread that comes through is a struggle between Parliament and the Crown, ranging from the rule of Simon de Montfort and his clashes with King Henry uh, to, of course, uh, the major civil war, the War of the Four Nations, and the parliamentarians versus the royalists. When you sort of look at British history or English history, um, starting off sort of with that Simon de Montfort era, do you think it was sort of inevitable that we'd end up at this point of constitutional monarchy, or, or do you think there was a, a chance for republicanism? I don't think there was a significant chance for republicanism, or at least not since 1660, um, um, which sounds uh, almost bizarre to go back to that far. Because after all, um, 
England, and it was, well, England and Wales, did try republicanism after King Charles I was executed in 1649. And there were various permutations which happened under the intervening 11 years before his son, Charles II, was restored to the throne. And that, I think, exhausted many aspects of republicanism, not least the belief of how do you create an alternative, um, how can I put it, a focus of loyalty and authority. And what was interesting is when the restoration happened in, in 1660, it was out without much dissent at all. There wasn't an argument about it. It was a very peaceful restoration. I mean, the only people who suffered were the what they call the regicides, the people who'd signed the death warrant for Charles I. Um, a number of them were, were found and executed in a, in a horrible way. But it was very limited uh, indeed. And it was actually quite peaceful. And I think that exhausted a lot of republicanism. The other parallels were during the after the French Revolution, um, when there was some sympathy for the French Revolution in in England initially, only initially, and then it turned into the war, long-running wars, Napoleon comes along and so on. And at the end of that period, there was a touch of republicanism, but it was very limited, and it, it quickly burnt itself out. There were the Chartists and so on and so forth. It quickly burnt itself out. And equally, after the Russian Revolution, the end of the First World War, um, the royal family was worried. You know, would they go the way of the royal families of Europe? After all, uh, in 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 Germany, in Austria, and a number of other countries that, that became republics, but that really didn't um, sustain itself. And what's interesting is that the that within um, now the UK, yes, the republican voices are being heard, but at the coronation, um, the leaders of um, of each of the devolved nations, many of whom are Republican by long-standing view, all turned up, including the designated First Minister of Northern Ireland, who is a Sinn Féin supporter, who is avowedly Republican, but felt her duty was to turn up to coronation. I think it's recognised that whilst there's a Republican voices, the real debate is about um, the extent of the monarchy, not whether we should have a monarchy at all at present. That could change over time um, because the monarchy has evolved enormously. So I don't think we're in a Republican moment. I think certainly other Commonwealth nations are. This was held back by the longstanding reign of uh, the late Queen. But I, 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 we already it's clear that some of the Caribbean um, nations will become republics, um, and it, it will cause practically no stir at all when they do. The big ones will be Australia, New Zealand, Canada, if they do, and that's probably may well happen. Certainly in Australia's case, over the next ten years. I like to think of the UK as a country where duty comes first before ideology. So my, I do have some admiration. Probably the only time I'll express admiration for. The leader of Sinn Féin showing up to the to the coronation. Um, I do want to follow up though on some elements of the of the 17th century, um, in particular as it relates to the protectorate, uh, and then of course later the restoration and indeed uh, the Bill of Rights that came from 1688-89. Um, when we sort of look at, it, it seems to be a period of history that isn't covered as much as perhaps it should be in schools in the UK. But is there a constitutional legacy of the Cromwellian protectorate? that sort of goes beyond uh, the simple fact of the restoration of the monarchy? Are there, are there elements of parliamentary procedure or of law that we should really point to as a strong constitutional legacy of, of Cromwell's protectorate? 
Well, I, I, I'm slightly different at one point. There is a, revi- a revival of writing about the 17th century. A number of very good history books have appeared in the last um, three or four years on that period. But I agree with you. It's not sufficiently taught in schools. I, I, that's a, the, the, there tends to be a great focus on the, the dramas of the Tudor era or the First and Second World Wars and not enough on the constitutional battle of the 17th century. Is there a legacy? Um, one of the legacies is actually the creation of the British state. Because previously, there wasn't much of a state. There was the court around the monarch, and then there was the feudal lords who collected taxes and so on. What we did see in the 17th century was a creation of the state. One of the most prominent symbols of that is the well-known diarist um, Samuel Pepys, who worked for both the protectorate, Cromwell, and then later for Charles II as as the um, Secretary of the Navy. He, He was a prominent civil servant dealing with the Navy, amongst other things. And so we saw the state being um, created in that period, a, a, a state distinct from the court, which is you know, actually fundamentally both constitutionally and politically of real significance. Um, otherwise, I, I think it did reinforce the sense of parliament separate from the crown. And I think that was a lasting legacy of not just the protectorate period, but the earlier, the arguments of the 1630s, particularly around 1640 to 1642, leading to the war, that parliament had its own identity. And that led to the Bill of Rights, which is very much a, a document which is quoted. I mean, I saw recently in something I was involved in, the uh, someone involved quoted the Bill of Rights. I mean, it's that in a sense is a living document. So there are legacies, but I think essentially a Parliament as a, a separate entity, not dependent on the Crown, is a legacy of that period. Um, I do have one last historical question before we return to the present day or the recent present. Um, a point of pride and one that I see a lot in sort of editorials and opinion columns is how Britain has been able to export a, a parliamentary model um, around the world and indeed export certain values uh, around the world when it comes to governance. Um, obviously, a large part of that is empire, but which of the, you know, we're, sort of, we're talking about Britain's system of governments, its constitution, which, is, is there a single thing that has been exported globally um, that other countries have adopted? Like, is there a single document? Is it just the entire British parliamentary system? Um, wh- why is uh, British governance so common worldwide? Well, it's partly for the, the obvious reason of, of, of empire and colonies. One of the ironies is one thing which is exported is something we don't have, and it's the central point of our discussion, which is constitutions. The historian Linda Colley wrote an extremely good book two or three years ago on constitutions making, and she related it Often constitutions emerge from wars, and um, but actually, the the, the 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 British were great constitution writers for other countries um, um, of various kinds. I mean, arguably, some of the structure of post-war Germany, the federal structure, which of course we don't have formally in, in the UK, is a result of, of, of British lawyers. The European Convention of Human Rights, very much affected by British lawyers after the war. But if you look at the constitutions around what is now the Commonwealth. That the, where they virtually all have formal constitutions is a result of British lawyers doing it. I mean, it's an ironic export, export or something we don't have ourselves. Um, and um, otherwise, it, it, yes, a parliamentary system. 
um, was an export. It's gone in various ways, but not the same types of parliament. I mean, what's interesting, that the wholly different types of parliamentary structure, if you look around various Commonwealth countries, partly a reflection of size. I mean, a small Caribbean island obviously has a different structure from Canada or Australia, which are enormous countries. South Africa had its own evolution of structure as a result of apartheid and post-apartheid, obviously. But I'd also say the rule of law, the sense of lawyers um, and an appeal to common law, as well as formal written constitutions, is a fundamental export. And indeed, it worked both ways. I mean, a lot of the leaders, the initial leaders of newly independent ex-colonies were British-trained lawyers. I mean, everyone forgets that Gandhi was a British-trained lawyer um, and a lot of others in that place. I would say as much the rule of law, and that is part, I mean, one of the last legacies of that is the battle of British lawyers and judges to be involved in Hong Kong, um, which is now being squeezed out because of what's happening, obviously, there and and, and the, the attempt by the central Chinese authorities to push that out. That's a, a kind of longer-term legacy. Yes. And, um, well, fast forward to the present, uh, Peter, and uh, obviously, you know, we're reaching the, the, the zenith of our conversation. Uh, Britain's longest-serving monarch died uh, last year, and her, uh, her successor was coronated on, on Sunday. Uh, much of the conversation surrounding uh, Queen Elizabeth's legacy was focused on her service uh, and devotion to what Julian has called duty. Uh, but from a constitutional perspective, what did her reign, how will her reign shape uh, the role of future monarchs? Well, the key thing is the monarchy survived during her long period uh, as, as queen. I mean, it is an extraordinarily long period. I mean, I, I'm old enough to have remembered her coronation as a, as a, as a four-and-a-half-year-old watching a, a flickering black-and-white TV screen. Uh, it's the fact that it survived over that period um, with, as she famously said, Annas Horribilis with the fire at Windsor Castle and the, the marital problems of her family and so on. That survival and the fact that no one challenged it um, is pretty significant. But of course, it evolved enormously in that period. One of the interesting things last September when she died was all the looking back on how uh, she preserved the firm, as it was often described, the monarchy. Um, as a uh, above politics institution and a recognition on the whole, occasionally breached by politicians, it should remain above politics. And it was a symbol of national unity. I mean, I give, give an example of that. Whilst now the, there is pressure to um, uh, for many Commonwealth countries to become republics, that the, it looks anomalous that the Queen is head of state and has, there is a governor general in Australia and Canada and New Zealand. I mean, look, it, it's bizarre in many respects. There is no real dispute that the British monarch is head of the Commonwealth. Now, you can argue what the value of the Commonwealth is, but the, 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 there is a sense of, of, of that. And she, whilst the end of empire really began under her father, um, with um, India be particularly becoming independent in 1947 and then followed later by Burma and so on, um, the real dismantling of the rest of, 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 of the old empire of the colonies occurred in her reign without, I mean, the main impact actually, curiously, is in Britain in immigration 
from a lot of the old Commonwealth countries, but not in terms of power structures or relations um, with these countries apart. I mean, obviously, the, there is Zimbabwe, previously Southern Rhodesia, and the long battles there on independence. But that was an exception to what was generally a fairly smooth period under her reign of decolonization and of retaining more or less friendly relations with you know, one or two exceptions. So it's that continuity. And also, with devolution within the UK... Um, there's been an acceptance, however Republican some of the leaders of the, of the of national parties in Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland may be, they've accepted that the existence of monarchy is not a, a disputed issue. And that's been some skillful operation under the, under the late Queen. Yes. And um, let's try to look at some of the uh, constitutional crises uh, of, of, of the last few years. Obviously, there was a brief one over uh, Boris Johnson's resignation that almost involved the Queen. Um, do you think her handling of those was in line with the expectations of the constitutional monarch? Uh, Absolutely. No, I mean, it's very interesting that. Well, l l let me let me introduce two elements to that, both under Johnson. One was in September 2019, the government, um, the new Johnson government, <coughs> wanted to prorogue Parliament. In other words, um, I'm sure it wasn't sitting for a period um, uh, for about two or three weeks because they didn't want to um, have political battles over the um, withdrawal from the EU Brexit. And they went up to Balmoral, where the Queen was, as she usually is in September, and got her to sign the authorization for prorogation. She had no choice. Um, what was interesting in that case is the Supreme Court and other courts declared the government's actions illegal um, because they were purely to avoid parliamentary scrutiny. They claimed it was for other reasons, but the courts didn't believe them. That put the monarchy in a very difficult position. No one blamed the Queen because she was following absolute constitutional precedent, which is to accept the advice of her ministers. It turned out in this case, the advice of her ministers was illegal and the courts dealt with it and the constitution worked, but it put her in a highly embarrassing position. In July 2022, there were hints, no more than that, that Boris Johnson, who was rapidly losing the confidence of his own party, a large number of ministers resigned in protest against his abuse of standards of public life and his behaviour, might trigger a general election and go to the Queen and try and overrule the, the dissenters in his party and go for a general election. And there was a certain amount of manoeuvring amongst the um, what used to be called the Golden Triangle, the Cabinet Secretary, Principal Private Secretary Number 10, and the Queen's Private Secretary to head that off. And one suggestion was that if Boris Johnson had tried it, the Queen wouldn't be available to take his phone call. And that, I think that, was a, 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 that would have been an extreme. But it would have clearly been improper for Johnson to seek a general election when he was losing the confidence of his own party and was in a very difficult position. And they evolved, but a constitutional problems were avoided, and it all went, you know, he recognised political reality and resigned, albeit grumpily, and he still hasn't really accepted it. There's been a kind of Trump-like um, refusal to accept the consequences of his own loss of confidence in his own party. But constitutionally, it was okay. I'd, I'd quite like to sort of just follow up on the, on the Johnsonian crisis around his eventual resignation from number 10. Um, do you think that that specific incident points to a strength of constitutional monarchy because you're able to do the right thing without it necessarily being enumerated? It's very interesting that. I think that the 
It points both ways. And if I can introduce another element to this, which is very relevant. In 2011, Parliament passed the Fixed Term Parliaments Act, and which fixed that the length of the Parliament should be five years unless there was a kind of supermajority of two-thirds in the House of Commons voting for an earlier election, which actually occurred twice. But anyway, what that did was take the prerogative power away from the monarch, because in previously... What had happened was a prime minister um, uh, basically had the choice of when a, if they wanted an election before five years. There was no fixed term before that. Uh, but they had to go to the monarch to seek it. And once or twice, there were suggestions that would a, would a, would a monarch accept that advice from prime minister? And it was always an uncertainty. That, um, and, and there were various criteria known as the Lassell's formula of what would be suitable for a monarch to say no. And indeed, that was what was being discussed in July 2022. Then the Fixed Term Parliaments Act was repealed because it had proved to be inflexible. But it returned the prerogative power in theory to the monarch. Now, a lot of people said, hold on, this is wrong to return a prerogative power <coughs> to the monarch. There were alternative formally, but that were rejected and, and the alternatives weren't accepted. Although several people warned of precisely the circumstances which occurred in July 22 of a prime minister losing the support of a large section of his party and seeking an election, which would put the monarch in a very difficult position. So I think once it showed that, that in extremists, the system could work without embroiling the monarch in party political controversy, there was the, the, the ambiguities and tensions are still there. So I think some people would say, no, you, you should seek to avoid that by returning the power to trigger a general election or to approve a prime minister to a majority in the Commons with uh, just a formal power left to the monarch. This is what happens in Scotland, where the first minister, and we just had a change recently, a first minister in Scotland, where it's the Scottish Parliament which votes on it, and then a name is put forward to the monarch. Now, it doesn't happen for the UK Prime Minister, um, where the an outgoing Prime Minister resigns, and um, then, uh, in theory, there's discretion open to the new Prime Minister. In practice, they all, the, the outgoing Prime Minister doesn't resign until a new one has been elected by the, the party members. But there are ambiguities there. So I think there are some concerns left. While the system did work, um, it didn't work in a clear-cut way, and you can imagine circumstances in which it might not work. Um, I, I'm going to sort of pivot to uh, an older crisis between Downing Street and Buckingham Palace, um, and that, of course, is the, the abdication crisis. Indeed, indeed. Um, I, I feel I, I have to ask a question on it. When we sort of think about, first of all, if you could give our, our listeners a quick overview, as quick as possible, of the abdication crisis, and then um, I, I do want to ask about the constitutional significance of then Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin essentially blocking uh, a royal marriage and forcing the resignation of a monarch, because it is something I think is constitutionally exceptional. Absolutely. I, it was quite, it, it was a build up of tension. It wasn't just that he wanted to marry a twice-divorced woman. Remember, this is a much more religious society where divorce was frowned on, uh, people who were divorced weren't admitted to social functions, and so on. It was also a longer history of Edward VIII, as he was then, 
have been somewhat, in the language of the time, rackety, having a, a, a fairly colourful private life, also um, being not totally committed to his role of doing the work as as as, as king. Um, he, he he didn't, unlike his father George V, who was a very assiduous, if somewhat narrow-minded monarch. He was a little wild. He'd also expressed political views interesting parallel with now, all that was a background, but it was more the social climate of the time with the churches, <clears throat> which were then far more um, influential than they now are, far more influential. Um, the churches also um, raising um, their objections and the um, dominion, as they were then described, prime ministers, also, which was then um, uh, basically Australia, New Zealand, Canada, and South Africa, um, saying they would object to um, um, the king marrying Mrs. Simpson, who, who he wanted to. So it all built up, and Baldwin um, quite skillfully maneuvered that, that basically facing the king was a choice which he didn't want to take, and therefore he abdicated. But I think it's quite clear that... It, Baldwin regarded Edward VIII as potentially a bad monarch, which, of course, was the view of, of George V's father. He didn't think he, his son would be a good monarch. Uh, the next question covers uh, separatism and sort of uh, the regional um, uh, settlement uh, between the four uh, component uh, nations of the UK. Um, you know, separatism is another animating force in British politics, as it is in, in Spain, where I'm tuning in from. Uh, do you think, Peter, that Irish unification or Scottish independence will uh, benefit or be accelerated under the reign of Charles III? And what about the dissolution of the Commonwealth, as seems uh, probable by some of the recent, um, by the recent case of the, the uh, Chagos or archipelago? I would say that, let, let's separate the two, because I think they're very different. Um, the, what is a present devolution, not separatism, um, What's interesting is that whilst the individual leaders of the Scottish National Party, the Welsh Nationalists who aren't, aren't in government in Wales, but they're a significant force, and the and Sinn Féin in Northern Ireland, where the, the, the largest party, but not a majority party, whilst they're Republican uh, in either formal name or aspiration, have not made it a central plank of their, of, of their uh, argument. They have said it's an argument to be had after um, we achieve independence. Now, independence in Scotland um, has been set back by internal feuding, um, the changes in leadership of the Scottish National Party, a big financial scandal which is still unresolved involving the former leader and her husband. There are a lot of problems for the Scottish National Party. And the general feeling is in the general election, which we'll have in the UK probably in about 18 months' time or slightly shorter, um, the Scottish Nationalists will lose quite a lot of seats um, um, in the Westminster Parliament. So I think actually separation in Scotland is set back. Um, Northern Ireland and Ireland Irish unification is a separate argument, and there the the catalyst has been Brexit and the UK living and all the problems of having a common land border and actually very nowadays quite close relations between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. Um, but that, again, is, a, is, a, is, is really uninfluenced in any way by the change of monarch. It's much more by the dynamics of Brexit. So I wouldn't overstress the role of a change of monarch and a different style on those quite separate 
um, arguments. On the Commonwealth, I think you've got to distinguish two things there. Countries becoming republics and the Commonwealth. The, the, it's very interesting. A good half of the members of the Commonwealth are republics. They don't recognize the monarch as head of state. They recognize the monarch as head of the Commonwealth. And there's a real difference there, a very important difference um, between the two. That I think there's an acceptance um, in London that, yes, more countries will become republics. I mean, it, it initially, a number of the um, Caribbean countries will. And most people's attitude in London is, well, yeah, sure, so what? Um, the, the more relevant thing is membership of the Commonwealth. And of course, the Commonwealth now includes countries which were never part of the British Empire, like Rwanda. Rwanda's, the last Commonwealth conf conference was held in Rwanda. Um, so, it, it, and, and, and so it, the Commonwealth is a much more amorphous collection, but the, the monarch is head of the Commonwealth, um, with kind of symbolic, which is largely symbolic. But the countries becoming republics is a separate argument. And indeed, what's been striking in recent debates is an acceptance, well, it's up to the country's concern. I mean, you know, if Australia decides to become a republic, that's Australia's affair. It's not, uh, it's not a snub or anything like that. It's just a kind of evolution, which didn't occur under the late Queen, merely because of her longevity. And the other problem is, which Australia found, remember Australia had a, a, a referendum some years ago on being a republic, which was voted down. It was voted down because they couldn't agree on an alternative formula. And that is the most powerful argument against Republicans. Continuity being key. Um, it's, it's funny, we've, we've sort of touched on this a little bit, um, but when Charles was Prince of Wales, and then now in the months leading up to the coronation, uh, there had sort of been chat on his views on the constitutional role of the monarch uh, and perhaps the fact that given that he's more outspoken on certain political issues, given, um, conservation of the environment being, of course, the most notable one. Do you think that there is actually, uh, that Charles views the constitutional role of the monarch in a different way to his mother or to his predecessors? I think, no, he doesn't view his constitutional role in formal sense. And it was very revealing. In the first broadcast he did, which was the day after his mother died, he, he said um, um, it was almost like um, Prince Hal becoming Henry IV in the Shakespeare play. You know, I will cast these things beside me. I can't do what I did as Prince of Wales. That he actually explicitly said some of the things he'd been campaigning on, notably the environment, but also um, some other issues. Um, he wouldn't pursue in the same way, although the Prince of Wales might do so. And he recognised that some of the letters he used to write to ministers when he was Prince of Wales, he couldn't do as monarch. So he has recognised that. And on the whole, that's what he's followed in the intervening six months, that, 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 that he, he hasn't done that um, at all. And I think he does recognise that. However, it, that won't stop him from expressing concerns, but not in a way which can be interpreted in a partisan manner. Um, one, the, I mean, an interesting view, I mean, there's a view that actually the, the current king is more kind of a classic centre-left figure with his concerns about the environment, um, about the Commonwealth, and the strongest criticism of him is likely to come from the right, not the left. Um, the people who are theoretically most pro-monarchist like, may well be the most critical of him and his approaches. And there's an interesting paradox and tension there. But I don't know, he's well aware of the constitutional constraints, and I don't see him doing that. One of the, of course, revealing things about the time 
both of his the last public act of the last Queen was to accept the resignation of Boris Johnson and appoint Liz Truss. And then the first few weeks of the King's reign were dominated by the melodrama of the Truss Premiership and her being forced out and um, uh, Rishi Sunak emerging as Prime Minister. Now, that actually strengthened the monarchy in one sense. Uh, it, it being a focus of continuity amongst what was a ghastly political shambles. I feel like there's an entire episode on the relationship between Thatcher and the Queen, given her permanence and her, her role in the state, but I, I don't think we'll have time for it today. I, I will quickly reference the second season of the British version of House of Cards, um, which has a sort of Charles parody figure as the King who ends up being forced to resign for actively campaigning for the Labour Party. Um, And I I sort of think this caricature of Charles that perhaps has died down in the last decade of being a more political monarch um, is one that, you know, I think a lot of people are sort of cautious about, Um, hence hence my asking sort of the question on what his view of the constitutional role is. I also think uh, I, I, the, the, I remember the, the House of Cards series of books by Michael Dobbs is getting on for um, 25, 30 years old. If, if, and, and in fact, the first one is, is older than that. Uh, it was a version of a very frustrated um, middle-aged, or early middle-aged then, um, Prince of Wales. At the time, his marriage was busting up and he was going through all kinds of problems. He's changed he 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 as um, um, you know, becoming monarch at at seventy three seventy four and now seventy four um, means he's mellowed. So a lot of the stuff from that era is very different, and I think he's more willing. Well, so he may have personal frustrations about things, and he's a, a supposedly quite an impatient person. Not about the constitution. I think he recognises that he he he's developed into that. So I I just don't see that, and he certainly won't. Whilst the word, I mean, when he was Prince of Wales, I mean, there, was, there have been a number of stories in the British press this week about his, his, his clashes when he was Prince of Wales with Boris Johnson on various things. And Boris Johnson and he, oddly enough, they agreed on some environmental things and um, architectural things. They rather agreed on those. But they didn't agree on um, um, things like Rwanda, the, the sending of some um, asylum seekers to uh, Uganda, which is a highly controversial subject in British politics. And, you know, he was impatient on that. I think he, my impression is he's much more comfortable with Rishi Sunak as as prime minister. And um, I wouldn't have thought he'd find the alternative Keir Starmer particularly threatening in any sense at all. So actually, he's got easier people to deal with. Yes, and it will be very interesting to see how, uh, well, indeed how British politics evolves and the relationship between prime ministers and the new monarch, because, of course, um, Elizabeth oversaw over a dozen prime ministers, uh, although Charles is on his second already uh, in the span of only six months. uh, He's on pace to to match that record. Um, We're going to shift over into our Patreon section, which will involve Myself and Jorge asking Peter a series of constitutional quick questions. And this is mostly related to constitutional reform in the UK. That has been, it's a a topic that sort of comes up occasionally uh, in British politics. Um, It was, I think, perhaps most prominent during the coalition years of the Conservatives and Liberal Democrats, because the Liberal Democrats had several ideas for reforming uh, British politics 
um, that in some ways are constitutional questions. Uh, and you know, the Fixed Term Parliament Act is, is one of those, um, as well as rules around voting. So if you'd like to hear that full uh, conversation, then subscribe to Patreon for as little as £5 a month. And you'll be able to hear that entire discussion and more from not just Peter, but also other guests in future episodes. So on to our patrons. All right. Peter's out. So, yes, we, we were very lucky this week to have an esteemed uh, journalist um, cover these questions of uh, the British Constitution and the role of the monarchy. Um, Julian, what, what did you make of it? I mean, this is one of my favorite discussions that we've had on this podcast. Um, it's one of those topics, you know, we talk about politics, we talk about the maneuverings, the machinations, but the actual framework in which politics operates, the Constitution, is one of the more interesting discussions that it's possible to have when you're discussing governance, politics, law, history, and Britain's long history of constitutional turmoil and chaos, um, both in the distant past and in the recent present, uh, makes for a very fascinating discussion. And one of the, the things that really stood out to me was the, I think when we, we when people sort of ask me here in the United States about the monarchy and I sort of describe them as, as functional figureheads, um, I think that was very clear in this discussion just how much power parliament has taken away from the monarch and the sort of tension inherent in that relationship, as well as the fact of concerns, as you pointed out, as it relates to the Fixed Term Parliament Act, about returning any prerogative powers to the Crown once they've been uh, given to Parliament because uh, from a sort of teleological perspective, power should only flow away from the Crown towards the popular body, the, the, Houses, the House of Commons and the Parliament um, from Britain's constitutional perspective. And I think that sort of came across in some of these remarks about specific moments in constitutional history of the UK, uh, as well as just sort of a general thematic uh, string that you see throughout British history is that gradual transfer of power, uh, sometimes through peaceful means, through legislation, sometimes through war, of power away from the crown towards parliament. And we sort of started off by talking about Simon de Montfort, talked about Oliver Cromwell, um, abdication crisis. But most recently, you know, that is absolutely what the trend has been, is power moving away from the crown towards parliament. Um, as Britain, although it is, you know, it's a constitutional monarchy, but really it, Parliament is the first institution of, of the British state. Um, one other thing that sort of stood out to me was the extent to which we talked about devolution, uh, not just within England, but of course to Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, and sort of the tensions of separatism. I, I sort of remember when Brexit happened, um, it was discussed as sort of an inevitability that Scotland would leave the UK. Uh, similarly, Northern Ireland would unify with the Republic of Ireland. And now with uh, Charles III taking uh, over from his mother, it was another common thread you'd see in sort of columns in, in various newspapers is that now Scottish independence was inevitable because Elizabeth II had sort of been the binding agent of the United Kingdom. And Peter sort of poured some cold water on elements of that for a number of reasons. Um, and I think he's, he's right to. Uh, but I think that, that trend of separatism uh, which is the sort of, I guess, the, the centrifugal force in the United Kingdom as opposed to the centripetal force of Parliament and the monarchy, um, isn't as strong as perhaps popular commentary would have you believe. But well, I know, I, separatism is, is a theme that we talk about quite a bit on, on this podcast, not just because it relates to, to Europe, but in terms of devolving powers as a way of quelling separatism, I just want to sort of get your thoughts on that, not only in the UK, but across other countries in, in Europe. 
Yes, one of one of the um, one of the things that people should realize when they uh, when they tackle this question of devolution in the UK is that this is not just uh, a matter that is important for the uh, for the outer regions of the UK, right? The outer nations, right? Scotland, Northern Ireland, and Wales. This is also relevant for England. Uh, this is a matter of devolving power down to where it is closest to the citizens that are going to be affected by those de- decisions. And I remember in my time in the UK when I when I lived there for three years, uh, three consecutive years. I did college uh, in London. And I remember that it was back then already a very sort of burning topic because we were, uh, you know, it was leading up into the um, the Scottish referendum, um, and um, and um, you know, I think um, again, this is uh, this is a matter of this is not just a question of well, how do we quell, as you said, the sentiment of separatism away from the from the UK, this the sense that Scotland has, you know, uh, uh, just. Large uh, amount, uh, large numbers of voters want to are voting for parties that are the the, the SNP, etc. Uh, this is also a matter of uh, apportioning power in a way that uh, makes uh, uh, that holds power accountable, um, and that citizens are able to best control the way decisions are taken. So I think England is very much impacted by this question. Um, and I think, uh, and I think overall, I wish to see the UK evolve towards a more, uh, not a federal system, but at least a, a system where Westminster get, gets to make decisions for matters that, that affect all four component nations of the UK. But those matters that are, that only impact one of those nations are taken in Holyrood or in, uh, sort of, uh, Wales, uh, Northern Ireland, and and England, uh, if if, uh, if, um, if I'm making myself understood. So yeah. I think it was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, you can just say Cardiff for the Welsh Assembly. Um, <laughs> or Storm yeah. Um Yeah, the, the only other thing is, I mean, I personally quite like to move towards a, a sort of federal republic, um, portraying my own personal views on the British monarchy there. Um, mostly it's, I think, because there are some elements of clarity that just don't exist in the British political system and its current constitutional makeup. And I think one element that the current system structure, we didn't have time to ask him about it today, but it was sort of on my list of questions was about, uh, and this is the form I'm going to give him another shout out, the rest of politics of cabinet ministers in the United Kingdom come from the House of Commons. They're just sort of members of the party. And a lot of times they're chosen to their loyalty. Now, this is not to say that they're not capable or intelligent, but the lack of professionalism, I think, from our, our ministers, uh, I don't mean that in the sense of them being unprofessional, in the sense of their lack of specialized knowledge, um, I think is something that perhaps the UK should look at over the long term, um, especially as it you know, moves into a new era outside of the European Union and having to develop its own capabilities, specifically as it relates to trade. Um, I think it might need to be a sort of new constitutional assessment to address some of those gaps. Um, but that is a conversation for another day. So Jorge, I want to thank you for, for joining me for this very British focused episode uh, on the monarchy and the constitution. Uh, and I want to thank not only you, but also Peter for proving to the entire British press and indeed the world that it is possible to do an episode on the monarchy without devolving into tabloid drama. So thank you so much for joining me on this journey and for keeping this 
well, intelligent. Yeah. That's what Thank you, Julian. Thank you. To our Uncommon Decency listeners, thank you so much for joining us again. Uh, I will plug the Patreon once more. For If you want to hear our very detailed discussion of some of the constitutional proposals that have been made in the popular press and by the Labour Party, um, you can hear that whole conversation for as little as £5 a month, €5 a month, or $5 a month, whatever your preferred currency is, um, where you'll also get access to uh, longer episodes of each of our recordings, including a few more episodes as we move towards the summer we have some really fascinating discussions coming up. So you don't want to miss out on it. So I encourage you to just subscribe, uh, which you can do wherever you get your podcasts. Um, Jorge, once again, thank you and take care. Thanks for putting this on, Julian. Thank you.